I believe we're all born with a spark, something that lights us up. And lots of times we're not raised in households that encourage us to discover it or to foster it or to grow it. Welcome to Making Change With Your Money, a podcast that highlights the stories and strategies of women who experienced a big life transition and overcame challenges as they redefined financial success for themselves. Now here's your host, certified financial planner, Laura Rotter. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Dana DelVal. Dana is on a mission to help others rediscover the spark they were born with through her extraordinary blog and newsletter, professional talks, and the Rediscover Your Spark retreats she leads. Dana's core belief is that we all have a spark, but identifying it and taking the first step is often the hardest part. Dana loves being the guide to help us uncover what that spark is. So Dana, welcome so much to the Making Change With Your Money podcast. Laura, thanks for having me. I just am really thrilled to be here. And I am thrilled to have you. I am going to start with the question I've been starting my interviews with, which is, Dana, what was money like in your family growing up? So money was very interesting. My parents got married very young. They were 19 and 23. And my mom did not finish college until I was much older. And so my mom stayed home and my dad was a teacher. And so my dad made all the money. And by all the money, I mean, my dad made the salary and my mom managed all the money. So I grew up in a household where while we didn't have a lot of money, my mom was like a bean counter extraordinaire. And so we got to do a lot of very unusual things for a family of five where you just have one parent working and not in a high paying profession. Because my dad's from New York, we traveled a lot. And we just, we were able to do a lot of things like that. Again, because my mom really managed that money. But I grew up with this understanding that one person holds pretty tight to those purse strings. And that's just the way it is. So it was an interesting place for me to enter into adulthood with because that is, I, I am the antithesis of a bean counter extraordinaire. I could give two hoots about the beans. So it makes my mom crazy and it has made for some interesting personal accounting as an adult. That's so interesting. I mean, women often do in households take the primary, not breadwinner role, but allocating a funds role. And it sounds like your mother really enjoyed that role. And in what way do you feel like that affected you? Because you just said, Dana, that that's not who you are. Well, I, this is probably the best, most embarrassing example. I lived at home during college because my mom, my parents got divorced when I was 15 and my mom and my youngest brother and I moved about 45 miles away so that my mom could go back to school. So my mom graduated from college the year I graduated from high school. And then I lived at home because we didn't have much money. She was brand new into her career. And she threatened to kick me out because I bounced six checks and really didn't care. So I was very much a money in, money out. I don't, uh, whatever. I'm an artist. I can't be bothered, which is 
unfair to say of artists because I know many artists who are really good with money, but that was sort of my philosophy. And then I had my son also young, not quite as young as my parents, but young. And suddenly, even though I didn't really care about money, I had to care about money. But that that bean counting chart of accounts, you know, because my when my son was born, this was pre-debit card. So you were writing checks at the grocery store. And, you know, my mom was putting everything into her record thing and she was subtracting and she always knew how much money was in her accounts. I never did that. I can't subtract fast enough to do that. I just, I have a very intuitive sense of money, which works fine if you have enough money to be a little bit loosey-goosey with it. If you are down to the penny, which is where I was when my son was little, it doesn't work because your intuition can be off by $10 or $100. Well, if you only have $9 in your bank account and you write a $10 check, you're in real trouble. So it took me a long time to get to a place where my intuitive sense of money served me really well, I had to start making enough money for it to work. So probably a real acute math person or a money person would say, you don't really have a sense of it still. You've just figured out how to make it work, which is fine. So Dana, can you walk our listeners through, I guess, how you got to that point where there was maybe $9 in your bank account? I know that you were an actor you perhaps still are an actor in many ways. So how, at what age was that a passion that you started to pursue and how did that evolve? Oh gosh, I did my first play when I was six, community theater production of The Sound of Music that both my mom and mom and dad were in. That was 44 years ago. And it's really only been in the last five or six years that I've utterly, entirely set it down and I certainly would still do, I still do some voiceover work, some commercial work, that kind of thing. But it just was the thing that fed me, that lit me up, that utilized my skills, that energized me, that seemed to take everything that I naturally was gifted with at birth and this, the tools and the skills that I was developing as I was getting a theater degree and and becoming a professional actor it it took all of those things and it it just gave me a place to utilize what felt like my best gifts to offer the world for a long time even though again i had my son very shortly after graduating from college so i did not move to new york city or move to hollywood and really try to pound the pavement and beat it out but when you consider that I live in the middle of the country, the most flyover of flyover regions, I actually have had a pretty remarkable professional career because most people go to the coasts. So I've been able to kind of ride out the, maybe maybe you think of it as like an attrition kind of thing. People, as fewer and fewer actors stay in my area and I'm still here, it has given me some great opportunities. So please share where you are. So I'm in Fargo, North Dakota. And yes, here, let me answer the questions. Some people do talk like the film, Fargo. I, lo- I love her accent. <laughs> yeah, she's, she is unbelievable in that film. The woman who gets wood chipped, Kristen Redrood, is from Fargo, is a friend of mine. 
we have the actual wood chipper at our convention and visitors bureau. So if you ever come to visit me, Laura, I will take you there. There's a whole bucket of winter hats and a leg sticking out of the out of the chute. It was not filmed in Fargo because North Dakota does not have a tax credit for films. It was filmed in Minnesota, where the Cohen brothers are from. It, <clears throat> to my experience, it is not as violent as the film or the TV show, but it is absolutely as cold. And you mentioned that your parents were in the theater that you had your first role in. So was that part of? Yeah, my my dad did just that one show. He played Captain Von Trapp. My mom did a number of community theater productions. My mom was a music teacher. And so I think it's not terribly surprising that the arts were a big piece of my life. Uh, certainly my parents were very supportive of me getting of me being in the arts, they were not thrilled that I was getting a theater degree, but they were, they didn't work against it. Let's just leave it at that. Which is quite a big deal, especially in a family that sounds like was aware of money. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do not come from a family of upper middle class. I, we were a very middle class family. And by today's standards, there's no way my family could have existed the way we did in the 80s on my dad's single salary. I mean, it's just that era of one parent income at that level, I think is really over in this country, which is a shame because there were a lot of gifts to having an at-home mom and she wanted to be at home for those years. So it, I don't want people to feel like they need to stay home, but if you wanna be home, it was a real gift as a child to have her there when I got home from school and all those other pieces. But I don't think that's possible today. So Dana, I love the fact that you you use the term my gifts several times so that it sounds like it's something you've reflected on. Like, what are your strengths and what are your gifts? So what would you say they are that you brought to acting and then into the next stage? First of all, I have a very present presence which I've always had. I've always been aware of my environment. I've always understood how I fit inside it. I've always been comfortable in front of other people. In fact, I would say I kind of crave it. When, when people say said to me during COVID, oh, I just cannot do another Zoom call, the Zoom fatigue, I would think, what are you even talking about? I, I just, I don't, I don't understand getting tired being in front of people. It's it's not that I'm such an extrovert. It's that I am a absolutely natural born performer. And so where does a performer need to be? They need to be in front of people, whether that's a camera or a stage or a cocktail party. It doesn't really matter to me. It's about the interaction. So I think that's a big piece of it. And then I think what I learned which has served me so well as an actor and served me well as a um, president and CEO in the nonprofit sector, and I hope will serve me well in my new entrepreneurial world, is that I'm a really strong listener. And what comes of being an active listener in conversation is that you are then able to make meaningful connections. So I can connect people to people, people to ideas, people to resources in ways that hardly anyone I know does as well as I do. And I think it's because I don't spend much time thinking, oh, I have a great answer for that. Stop talking so I can talk. I really listen and then answer. 
So it's interesting, given that, that you casually mentioned that it served you in your role as executive director at a nonprofit. So can you please share, Dana, how did that come about? Uh, Yeah. So I really had one goal after my son was born, and that was uh, to never take a full-time job because I believed so wholeheartedly that I was going to be a movie star that aside from parenting, which I will say, I was devastated to be pregnant. And then once I realized I was bringing this little person home with me in January of 1996, I never, ever, ever questioned whether or not I should be a mother, whether or not I loved this little person. He was and is the gift of my life. So that's an important caveat, but I needed to be flexible and available for when I had the opportunity to watch my star ascend to where I believed it was supposed to go. So a full-time job would have absolutely prohibited that. So I, um, I went on to get a master's degree and I adjunct taught and I did freelance writing and I did a lot of commercial work and voiceover work. And when Quinn, my son was little, I babysat and I did all kinds of things just so that I could get to an audition so that I could be available. And I will say this about my family. I think they worried about, they certainly worried about their grandchild. So I have, there's three sets of grandparents because my parents are divorced and Quinn's Quinn's dad's parents were very involved. His dad and I never got married, but we all just decided we loved this little person. And so we would all just be in this boat together. And I I have to think that at many different times, all three sets of grandparents thought, what in the world is she doing? She should go get a real job. She should provide something better for that child and be done with it. And to their credit, they never really raised that criticism with me. They just kind of let me do what I did which was the right choice because I would have shriveled up and died in a cubicle. I always knew that about myself. Money was never my focus. Time was my focus. So this job came up and what do you know? I got that freaking job and it did end up being full-time, but I said to them, cause I'm nothing if not uh, able to think quickly on my feet. I said, so it's full-time. I think it's really important that the president and CEO of an arts nonprofit be a working artist. So when I have auditions, unless they conflict with board meetings, I will be going to the auditions. Because how can I represent artists if I'm not going through the art of being an artist too? And they agreed. So I had the perks of full-time. I mean, in the nonprofit sector, there are not a lot of perks, but, you know, I had the perks of full time and I had time, which was the really the only reason I said yes to the job. So I have been in that job since July of 2010 and will only be leaving it finally April 28th of this year. So I've been there almost 13 years. And I can tell you, Laura, that they were also concerned about my financial background. They said to me, you know, what's your background with like profit and loss statements? And I said, yeah, I don't have any background with profit and loss statements. I can tell you that I run 
a tiny little household of two and I feed my son every night. So I must be doing something right. And they decided that you can teach someone to read a profit and loss statement, which I am testament and here to say, yes, you can, because I can read them now. That's a learned skill. You don't need to be born with that to do it well. So that's how I ended up as president and CEO. Thank you. And I love that you articulated that time is a scarce resource. Money is a scarce resource, of course. So is time and so is energy. Our lives are all about finding the balance, which shifts over time, shifts at different ages. But knowing that time was just as important to you as money is a gift, a word that you've used, because not everyone does. And then you wake up one day and you go, oh my God, I have money, but where are the relationships? Where are the meaningful activities? So Dana, I know there was a big event in your life and in a relationship that has helped change the trajectory. So can you please share with our listeners what that was? I feel like I've had three or four big events. I didn't want to go down the road. Oh, well, <laughs> feel free to share others if the, if you feel no, there is. So um, just, just for backstory, in August of 2001, I was up sweating it out in my income-based apartment, 45 stairs up with no air conditioning. And a good friend of mine was supposed to come over and watch a movie with me. And he didn't come and he didn't come. And about 11 o'clock, the phone rang. And he said, you should come down to this bar that was down the street a ways. And at this point, my son is five and a half years old. So he puts this man on the phone who's drunk. I mean, not like fall down drunk, but slurry. And I'm thinking, what in the world? And then he starts to talk and I realize he has an accent. And turns out that Maz is Irish, but grew up in England. And he's been in America at this point for nine months. So I finally said to him, as I, I guess I should go. And he said, all right, lass, I'll speak to you soon. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm done. I'm done. Okay. So that was August, September 11th, 2001, the world turns upside down. I had had a dinner event that I had to go to. And so the same friend Peter is over babysitting Quinn and I come back from this event and it, it, things are so even even from Fargo, North Dakota, things are so distressing on that day. And I have a brother who lives in New York City, and we knew by then that he was fine. But just it's so awful that I think maybe I just need to meet Mass. Maybe the world is ending, and I just need to go for broke. So I had Peter call him, and he came over that night, and he was one of the very last flights to get back from his original location. He left France that morning and landed in Fargo about two hours after the Twin Towers had fallen, he didn't even know anything was happening. They didn't announce it in the airspace. And so we sat up all night long and we talked about where he had traveled and his education. He's a plant cell wall biochemist and he's so friggin' smart. It's just insane. And we've been together ever since. Okay, so that's 2001. We got married in 2008 and we never lived together. So He'd always told me that he had one whiskey a night and I grew up in a household of zero alcohol. So, okay, we get married. We're finally living together and he's not just drinking one whiskey a night. And then that just progressively gets worse and worse and worse until by 2017, things are very, very bad. I do think it's important to note there was never any abuse. 
to either me or Quinn. We were never unsafe. And because I was so naive about alcoholism, I just thought, well, he's never gotten a DUI. He's never crashed his car. He goes to work. He's kept his job. He must not be an alcoholic. And um, February 1st, he woke me up in the middle of the night and said, you have to take me to the emergency room. Something's really wrong. He'd had a nosebleed for about 14 hours. And I walked into the bathroom and it looked like something had blown up in the bathroom. And so I took him to the emergency room. And long story short, he was gone for six and a half weeks. So two and a half weeks in uh, the hospital, including six days in intensive care in a medically induced coma, and then four weeks in inpatient rehab. And then I think about eight or nine weeks in what I call daycare rehab, where he would go during the day. And he has been sober ever since. So he just celebrated his sixth year of sobriety, February 1st of 2023. And I think the reason that this story matters is because one of the things that really suffered while he was drinking, and it wasn't just because he was spending a lot of money on alcohol, was our finances. So we were both professionals at this point making, I don't know, over, we were making over $100,000, which for some listeners is not a lot of money, but for us, it was good money. Um, we live in a very modest little house and you know it was good. And yet freshman year of my son's college, we were there for parents weekend. So this was 2014. And I happened to check our checking account and we were overdrawn. And I had to borrow money from my 18 year old so that we could take him out for dinner, which was truly mortifying. The reason that I, I said it wasn't just that Maz was drinking away all our money was because I was also sort of out of control spending. So like I would go down to this great little boutique downtown and I would come home and I would say to him, I had to have these three dresses. They were $700. $700 is a lot of money. And I wasn't doing it weekly, but I was maybe doing it three or four times a year. And I mean, I have had a job where I needed a lot of cocktail dresses and those kinds of things. So it was never totally unreasonable, but it was pretty unreasonable. And so we were often in real money trouble and we couldn't have any conversation about it because he heard me accusing him and I heard him lying. And both things were true. I was accusing him and he was lying. And we were out of control about money because we could never just say, could we be honest about this? He, you know, I would see a $60 ATM withdrawal and I would say to him, what are you doing with all that money? And he would say, I'm buying sandwiches. And I would say, what kind of sandwiches cost $60? And he couldn't answer it. So it was just this, like when Quinn was little, money felt out of control because I had none. Now we had some and it was equally out of control. And it was worse because it wasn't just me spending it. And I couldn't get to the bottom of it. And it felt like we were never, ever, ever going to get away from it. It didn't matter what kind of raises we got. It didn't matter what money I would sort of secretly set aside in an online account. There just was never enough money. And that was as bad as the drinking because it was so, I was just frantic about it all the time. And I just felt like I was never going to get a handle on it. 
And the minute Maz got sober, we were able to have real conversations about it. I lost all interest in spending $700 on three dresses. I haven't really shopped since 2018 because I don't care. I don't need to exercise control somewhere. And so that's where I'm doing it. I have control in every place in my life now that matters. And so that external stuff is irrelevant. And that's one of the great, great gifts to his sobriety. Thank you for sharing that. You describe right this event that I asked you about is changing everything, but it didn't necessarily have to, Dana, right? People can can go through a lot and then resume their old patterns. So what do you attribute both your abilities to change and where has that led you? I always say we had a nurse who I actually think was probably an angel sent to me. She she was extraordinary. And I mean, she is a real person. I'm still connected to her. So she's so she's not, you know, she's not Clarence from um It's a Wonderful Life, but she did for me what Clarence did in that film. The day that Maz finally went into that coma, she brought me a journal. This was day three of his hospital stay. And she and I said, well, I, what is this? And she said, You're going to need this. She said, You don't know it yet, but I know you're going to need this. So just keep it with you and start to write when it makes sense to you. And so we moved up to the intensive care floor and I started to write and I wrote about 80 pages and I just said absolutely every single thing I'd been thinking for years. And I, I raged and I cried and I ranted and I just, I did everything. And when I was done, I certainly wasn't done, but I had purged the the toxins that were living in me the same way literally Maz needed to physically detox. I needed to detox too. So when he woke up five and a half days later, as I said, we weren't fixed at this point. We had a lot of work to do, but I was able to be in a place where I had at least let go of past anger and sadness and frustration and shame and all of that. I'd let go of that stuff. And once he kind of really got into the work of rehab and had his moment where he also started to let go of that, then we kind of found ourselves in a new place where we had never really been. And we were on equal footing in some ways for the first time in our lives, because what I brought to the relationship when we first met was just substantively more. I brought a child. I brought my country, my culture, my family, my apartment. I bought this house before we got married. It was all my stuff that he was coming into. And all his stuff was 6,000 miles away in England. And for the first time ever, we were both at this place where neither one of us knew what going forward looked like. I think because we individually worked through a lot of that anger, we could come to the new place of examining anger and shame and frustration and all of that, because that needed to be examined together. We could come to that place fresh. And if you were to read that journal, you would see exactly what you just asked me. Throughout 
the hopeful parts of it, which there are some of, you see me saying, I'm so afraid that you're going to get fixed and I'm just going to shift my focus of criticism from this to something else. What if that is all I am? I will be forever proud of the work that we did individually and together and grateful for it because you're absolutely right. A lot of couples just don't get to that point because it's easy to fall back on old habits and hard to decide to disrupt that. Yes. And you mentioned journaling and you mentioned a nurse. Was there, were there other facilitators or resources or you were just both two very strong people? I told very few people. I will say again, my family stepped in in really beautiful, supportive ways. I mean, when I called Quinn to tell him Maz was in the hospital, he was a junior in college and he said to me, I could, I could quit right now. I could drop out right now and come home, which moved me. And I told him not to. I said, let's wait and see how things play out. But that, that was an incredible, incredibly generous thing for him to set himself aside and think about. I, I didn't really have a lot of other people because I told so few people. I called a friend one night who was also a professor just because I started to think about oh my gosh, is Maz going to lose his job? And what is that going to look like? I remember going into the hospital finance office one day, I was panic stricken that insurance was not going to cover this. So I had called our insurance agent and she told me that our plan did have hospitalization and rehab for addiction, which I, I remember almost falling to the floor in gratitude. And then I thought, yeah, but how much will they cover? So I went to the finance office. And I mean, we're talking about between between the hospital stay and rehab, we're talking more than $250,000 worth of bills. And we ended up spending about $6,000. Yeah, it's interesting when we realize, and it doesn't have to be as dramatic a situation as you just described, Hana, where we realize we're not victims and we actually have a role to play and we bring something to dysfunctional relationships. Everyone brings something to dysfunctional relationships. Uh, I don't, but everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't anymore either, Laura. So we're in good company. <laughs> that was a one and done for me. <laughs> so I'm wondering, as you describe the story, what role did faith Play. Well, I am. So I grew up Methodist, which is, you know, a pretty milk toast uh, Christian denomination. It's a lovely denomination, um, but it is not straight up mainstream United Methodist, is not uh, fundamentalist, is not, you know, crazy. It's really like hymns, grace, and potlucks. That's really been my experience in the Methodist church. So I grew up around that and was quite active in church until probably 10-ish years ago when I started to feel like this isn't really resonating for me anymore. And so I have stepped away from organized religion. And, and I'm not asking a question at all about that right. kind of... But, but I say that because what I am is I am very spiritual. I do believe in angels. I do believe the universe has an active role in our lives. I believe the universe can be what you want it to be. I don't care. You can see God with the long flowing beard. You can see, I don't care. Somewhere between mysticism and 
organized Christianity and physics and spirituality as a new age thing is where I live. And I live there very, very comfortably. So what happened three years ago that made you go from telling hardly anybody to going very public? When Maz came home, Maz came home in March of 2017. And one of the things that had not happened for much, many, many years is we hadn't really traveled in part because he was really hard to travel with. So we hardly did any of that. Well, after he got sober and we kind of felt like we ran into a money tree, we started to travel a lot. In 2017, 18, and 19, I was in England or parts of Europe four times a year. Plus we were in Hawaii a couple of times, some other major traveling. And because everything was so much better in our lives, my social media feed went from like Maz being largely absent to Maz being very present. And people started to say to me, like, what's going on in your life? And there was always this, like, um, both happiness for me and kind of, what, what, why do you get to have this? And so I realized that Maz and I were presenting the highlight reel. I was sitting and reading and I just had this idea and I went out to the kitchen where he was and I said, all right, I'm going to ask you this one time. And if you say no, I will never ask you again, which is so unlike me because I'm sort of a terrier. If I get something in my mind, I'll gnaw my own hand off to get it. And I said, I think maybe we should go public with this because I don't think people understand because they don't know why things are so incredible in our lives. And I said, this is your story. So if you say no, we won't do it. And I think we should do it on February 1st, 2020, because that was his three-year anniversary. And he asked if he could have some time to think about it. And I said, yes. And he came back an hour later and he said, let's do it, which shocked me. So we wrote nine blogs and then we turned it into a 27-part series, which we launched uh, through my website. And my little website went from about 800 views a month to 25,000. I had no idea that almost everybody can say, oh, I have addiction in my life. I had no idea. So then we finished that up in April of 2020, which was crazy to do it through COVID. I mean, so interesting. And then in July of that year, we started a daily live stream called Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee Dee, which we just ended in December of 2022. So 384 episodes, which still live online, all around addiction, recovery, and sort of restoring a joyful marriage because so few marriages make it through this kind of thing. It was so healing for us. If it had done nothing for anybody else, I would still be glad we did it because we had conversations we never would have had any other way because when you got to show up and present 15 minutes of content every single day, you talk about everything. I cried, we laughed, we were angry sometimes. I mean, it was, there were hard conversations in there. And we also know that we saved we literally helped save lives. And every time I would think, ah, maybe we should be done. Hardly anybody's paying attention. Out of nowhere, a complete stranger would approach me in the grocery store. Or Maz would call the registrar's office at the university where he teaches to ask about a student grade. And the, the person on the registrar line would say, I just want you to know how important your call, your program is to me. Or, I mean, 
it was unbelievable the people who reached out and it taught me that the real tragedy to addiction is the shame and isolation that we all and as soon as we dispelled that then i felt no shame at all in saying haha here i am back in england haha here i am in hawaii haha here i am on a bike ride with my fantastic husband because everybody also knew the terrible that we had been through thank you and it it's just resonating because in so many areas of our lives again it doesn't only have to be addiction people struggle with shame and isolation. It's one of the reasons I'm starting this podcast because people going through big transitions feel like I'm the only one. Everybody else is happy. Everybody else is settled. And it's not true. And as you know, money brings up so much shame. Well, I was going to say one of the things that I find so attractive about you is that on paper, you had an incredible life you know, this great, big, powerful job on Wall Street, like that's so impressive, particularly for those of us who have this perception of what Wall Street looks like. And to be a woman at that level is so impressive. And yet I know that you did not love every moment of that and that you must have felt isolated and frustrated in a lot of ways. But how do you express that when so much of what other people think is true is not true. It's it's really hard to be honest, hard to be honest about how bad you are with money or whatever. So I agree with you. Addiction happens to be the demon that lived at my house. But boy, we all have them and we all try to hide them. We're all mostly trying to make the lump under the rug a little bit flatter so that nobody looks at it and questions it. So now where are you taking your gift of talking truth and authenticity. And I just love, I've told you, Dana, I love the word, you know, rediscover the spark. So tell us about what that is. So I think actually I completely ignored your last question, which I completely forgot about until you just said that. <laughs> oh. So I'll I'll go back because it's all tied together. In September of 2020, I was on a two-week writing retreat. And I thought that I had gone to um, read through my grandparents' courtship letters. They they fell in love by letter from 1949 to 1951. And as far as I know, and as far as my mom knows, nobody but the two of them has ever read the 500 or so letters, which live in two big boot boxes now in an extra bedroom of mine. And I thought, you know, I should read those and maybe it's a screenplay or maybe it's a novel or I, I wasn't sure what. So I applied for this solo writing retreat. I was by myself for 14 days out in rural, rural North Dakota. I was 30 miles from the nearest town uh, by myself. I started to read those letters and they were incredible. They were flirty and charming and sassy. And my grandma was so accomplished for a woman she was born in 1913 and had a great big job and all these kinds of things. And I loved meeting them as mid 30 and mid 40 year olds. But I realized really quickly, there was nothing in that for me now, there may be someday later, but not now. So I set those down and I just decided to get curious about what was I going to do? I had 12 and a half more days of this writing retreat. 
what was I going to do? And so I was out walking the, the farm fields and I had the day before I had had this very uncomfortable all day long disrupted feeling. I felt kind of the best way to describe it is I felt like I had on a really itchy wool sweater and it was too warm. So it's kind of sweaty and scratchy. And I just decided to just sit with that and see what came of it. And I woke up the next morning and I was through it. And I didn't really know what I'd gotten through or where I was, but I realized that I was someplace I'd never been before. And so I'm out walking and I'm talking to the universe and I'm saying, this is, this is incredible. And I feel different. And I don't know why I feel different or what I'm different for, but it's different. And I don't want to lose this feeling. And I also want to help other people figure this out. And I'm talking and I'm gesturing and the birds are flying south and it's just me in the fields. And the universe so, so clearly stopped me and said, Dana, you're a personal systems disruptor. And I stopped and I said, I am? And it said, yes, yes. And you're going to do this work for all kinds of people. And I said, I am? <laughs> and it said, yes. And I was a quarter of a mile from the farmhouse. And in that quarter mile, I kind of constructed this course. And I gave myself three months to research it, put it together, market it, and hold it. And I held my first virtual course in 62 days. And the name has changed now to Rediscover Your Spark. Um, but the work is the same. The work is really this idea of what happens when you dig and you think, oh, I, I didn't realize that I love plants and that I find them healing and that I want to talk to them and I want to provide them to people who are shut-ins and that. Or I forgot that when I was little, what I loved to do was make mud pies. And I didn't really ever equate that to the fact that Today, when I when I go to visit someone, I always bake them something. Is there something there or whatever? So the point is, I believe we're all born with a spark, something that lights us up. And lots of times we're not raised in households that encourage us to discover it or to foster it or to grow it. I was so unbelievably lucky to be raised in a household that valued my creativity valued my um, sense of wonder and dreaming and my audacity. I was absolutely encouraged to be audacious all the time. That's unbelievable, particularly in the Scandinavian Midwest. <laughs> and so I, I didn't realize that not everybody sort of spent time thinking about what do I want? Cause I've always known. And so that is the work that I'm doing. And I, I just now am launching a kind of a pre-program called Discover Your Spark because I was with the woman who does my nails, who I love so much. And she said to me, do you want to know why I've never taken your course? I said, sure. She said, I haven't taken it because how can I rediscover something I was never born with anyway? And it broke my heart because she's so outstanding. And I realized that if you didn't grow up and have encouragement to dream, then maybe you don't know what your spark is because nobody ever said, you're extraordinary. Let's factor in and let's foster what makes you, you. So now I'm doing these 90 minute 
um, experiences just around spending some time with some big air generic areas in your life just to give yourself the chance to dream and dig and see what shows up because she's right you can't rediscover something you don't believe is there now my goal is to help people believe that they have something and then help them create the framework to not just dream about it but to pursue it over the course of three days, three months, three years. It sounds amazing. You have in the past used the term intuition. I'm sure you'll agree. Intuition needs to be cultivated. And back to something you and I discussed, which is it's you need time. I mean, you describe having those days along alone near a farm because we have so many voices in our head. We've got the TV, we've got our parents, we've got our spouses, we've got, you know, social media. And you really need to just be quiet to start to tune into, you know, who's Dana? What does Dana want? It sounds like you've always been encouraged and that's a gift that you recognized your family gave you. But so many of us really never sit quietly, never listen to what our bodies are telling us, how we're reacting to things. And so if, you know, to the extent that there's a framework that you can help people use to quiet down and get in touch with themselves, um, that's beautiful. What kind of people do you find or, you know, are attracted to it? Well, it's so interesting, Laura. I thought I was creating the program for me, basically, you know, middle-aged, middle-income, middle America, white women. It just when I was imagining sort of who's going to want to do this work. And I have worked with a number of women who fall into that description. But there have been three additional groups that I never anticipated and have been such a delight. One is sort of that 26 to 28-year-old who's two to five years out of college, looking around in their career and going, wait a minute, this cannot be what I'm going to do now for 40 more years. This just cannot be it. So that group has been interesting. And I would say the young people in that age group who've done the work with me have made the most literally dramatic shifts in their lives. And I think some of that is because they have the least number of obligations in their lives. It's a good time to make huge moves across the country or to quit your job and go back to school or those kinds of things. So that's one group. Um, another group that I never, ever expected is men. Men do this work. And what I've realized in working with them is Women have a lot of places where we can get vulnerable. We do it one-on-one. -on -one. We do it in small groups. We meet for book clubs. We've got all these areas where we feel comfortable and it's societally acceptable for us to get vulnerable with each other. We have not created places for men to talk about what they're afraid of or what kind of keeps them up at night or if they're living to their fullest desire and potential. So that has been really, really incredible to do that work. I would love to do more work 
with men, because I just think there's a real need for that. There's not as much need for a place for women to do this work. And then the third place that has also been a real delight to me is retirees who say, I had a great career. I have disposable income. I do not want to work on anybody else's schedule, nor am I ready to just watch TV all day. I want one more big, meaningful chapter that is on my terms. And I do not know quite what that is. And that group's been really delightful to work with too. Yes, I I love that group. I do a lot of work with that group. (laughs) And again, the term that I didn't make up that so many people retire from something and don't retire to something. And that's the important question to answer. When we, when we don't need to answer to an employer and we don't need to answer to our kids because they're adults. And, and so what's our next step? Yeah, that's, that's a great way to think of it. I don't know that I've heard that. Not Don't retire from, retire to. It's great. So Dana, as you've been on this journey, how would you say your definition of success might have shifted? Well, I think... There is no question that I have always strived for notoriety. I've always wanted to be known. And not like like I used to say, I want to be a movie star because I want to be a great actor, not because I need a million Instagram followers. I, I want to be a real whatever I am. And so... There is a piece of me that wants this work to grow to the level of, I want a Netflix special and I want um, to be on super soul conversations with Oprah. And I want to write books that are New York Times sellers, bestsellers. There's no question that I want that. But more important to me, and I would say that that the work I've done with Maz in Daily Dose has really helped me see the value of this more important than just, I want to be a household name, is I want to do good in the world because I've had so many good things happen to me and for me and given to me that I want to be able to help other people who did not have what I had, who did not have parents who just said, yes, of course you can be that. Go be that. You're incredible. If you didn't have that, how do you know that you are? So I I want to do good and I want to be a force for joy in other people's lives and and an awakening mechanism for them. Because even in my lowest low points, and I've definitely had some low, low points, I never questioned my value. I never questioned my worth. I never questioned if I had something to offer. I never quite knew, and I still don't quite know how I'm going to reach the masses, but it's not because I think I don't deserve it. And I think everybody deserves it. I am not the anomaly. I'm just the one who was gifted with the belief in it. I want to be able to do that for other people so that they believe that they have value and worth and have something to offer other people too. I love hearing you articulate your mission. And I really do believe that the energy to do what you're doing, yes, 
you've articulated you like to be on camera or you like to speak. You're feel- but it's coming from something deeper, from a real sense that what you're offering is important and makes a difference. You've said that. You heard people tell you what a difference the podcast you had make and you know made and you know how this has made a difference. This exploration has made a difference in your life. I do think as we get older, our energy, right? One of our scarce resources wanes and it can't just come from a vision we had when we were younger. It has to come from something deeper. So Dana, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, how can they find you? You can find me at danadelval.com. And my parents gave me that fantastic movie star name. <laughs> uh, but it, this, but the spelling is a little odd. So let me spell it for you. D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. You can reach me at Dana at danadelval.com. I would love to have a conversation with you. I think, I think there's just, you have nothing to lose by asking if you've got more to give and you have everything to gain. And that's, I'm not saying it's not scary, but wow, we have one go at life and even a long life is short. So if not now, when? That's that's really the question that drives me. If not now, when? Yes, and you've changed your life to answer that question. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation, Dana. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dana DelVal, creator of the Discover Your Spark Retreats. I'd like to share some of my takeaways. First takeaway is know your strengths and your gifts. Dana knows that she is a natural born performer, whether on camera, on stage, or at a cocktail party. She thrives on interactions with others. She also has strong listening skills, which enables her to connect people to ideas and resources that would be helpful to them. My second takeaway is to build your life around your values. Dana noted that money was never her focus. Time was her focus. As a single mom, she wanted time with her son. As a performer, she wanted time to act. And she continues to prioritize time for relationships that matter to her. Third takeaway, don't shy away from difficult conversations. Dana describes her marriage to Maz, someone who suffered from alcohol addiction, and the out-of-control feeling she had as each of them avoided important conversations about his drinking, about her spending. By the way, the most important conversation we often need to have is with ourselves. Dana noted that journaling was cathartic, during her husband's addiction and recovery journey. Are you enjoying this podcast? Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss next week's episode. And if you really are enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review. I would appreciate it so much. Thank you.
for listening to Making Change With Your Money. Certified financial planner, Laura Rotter specializes in helping people just like you organize, clarify, and invest their money in order to support a life of purpose and meaning. Go to www.trueabundanceadvisors.com forward slash workbook for a free resource to help you on your journey. Disclaimer, please remember that the information shared by this podcast does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. It's for information purposes only. You should seek appropriate professional advice for your specific information.